You are listening to Conversations with International Professionals, where we discover the challenges and rewards of communicating across language, culture, and leadership. We are sponsored by leadinenglish.com, your official site for mastering clarity, impact narrative, where you can get 32 coaching sessions to up your game and deliver results in no time. Now, here is your host, Vince Varello. I am delighted to be joined by my two longtime colleagues and very dear friends, Jörg Schmitz and Carmela O'Flaherty. Carmela, what can I say? We've been working side by side on so many projects for a long time. I'm very fortunate to work this closely with you. And Jörg, our journey goes back even longer. We worked closely together in the 90s, co-authored our book Leading in English a few years ago, and now we have the pleasure of being business partners. So, so happy both of you are here today. Let's begin with Carmela. Please share with us a little bit about your background. Oh, of course. I am an international professional. And what makes me an international professional is that I was born outside of the U.S. I grew up on two different continents and then uh, immigrated to the U.S. in my early 20s, where I went to school and then worked in the financial industry. I've changed my careers many times, and it has been absolutely delight to work with you, Vince, for the past many, many years, <laughs> over 20 years. Thanks, Carmela. York? Yeah, I think Carmela and I share a lot of that kind of a history. You know, I came to the U.S. also in my early 20s to study primarily, and then stayed for a while, for over 30 years, actually, and then uh, went back to Germany, where I'm originally from. But what makes me an international professional is that, but some other elements as well, I think. First of all, ever since I came to the US, I've been working in English. So that's has become my language of primary business and social communication, in a sense. And then I've worked globally since then in as a consultant in just about every continent and, and in some capacity with global organizations largely. And I think, you know, that I've met many other international professionals. Some of them have stayed just where they were born, actually. But by virtue of them using English for their global or international business endeavors, they are also international professionals. That's what I love about that term because we can all have we all have a different path to it but somehow we we all work across language culture and business in a real sense you know that's probably a, a good place to start and thank you for that definition from really both of you you know it's a, an expression that we've been using that international professionals maybe as a way of definition find themselves at the crossroads or at the intersection across language culture, and leadership. So just based on that, let's kind of share with me a little bit about what that means and, and share with our audience that reflection. And maybe Jorg, I'll start there with you. <laughs> so what does that mean? That means that whenever I write write a document, a sentence, maybe as we've done this is our book, or when I write a PowerPoint presentation, that I always need to reverse it in the end, <laughs> you know, and essentially always keeping in mind that the way I think or tend to express myself probably lands differently with an audience, and I need to do it first the way I would do it, and then I would, 
need to turn it around. And that's what that means to me, actually, because then I need to present it right, to people. And I need to organize my materials based on how I have come to know the audience. And most importantly, because it's never just about communicating. It's also, I think, in a business context, very much about inspiring people and engaging them in a way, I mean, that aligns their efforts and, and moves them in a particular direction. Usually it's business yeah. strategy or so. And that takes more than communication, right? So if I do it the way I would probably naturally do it, it probably won't land. So that adaptation to an audience to, and not just thinking, are people understanding my point, but are they inspired by what I'm trying to tell them? I think that's, the, that's what that means to me, Vince. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Carmela, go ahead. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Your, that really resonates with me. The, the impact piece is big. And I am looking at being an international professional and inspiring through communication. So the impactful communication is the core element, and it is located at the center of language, culture, and leadership. But what I've also learned myself as an international professional and also as a professional that works like you with other global companies and other professionals is the need to listen, to listen and observe first. And then when you're saying impact and engagement is listening with your whole body, listening with your eyes, your ears, your gut, my heart, and listening to observe. And un unless I really hear and understand what the audience want and the need is, and what are the concerns, I can't really meet them. I need to read between the lines. And that's exactly where language and culture intersects. And I cannot be an impactful communicator, nor can I be an impactful leader unless I do that. And interestingly, through my experience, my personal experience as well, I learned that words that I use convey just a very small fraction of the meaning. And that follows what you're saying, and I believe it's about 7% or so. But the packaging of those words is what evokes the emotional engagement that is necessary for impact. So by packaging, I mean everything beyond the words, the body language, the vocal variety, tone, volume, speed, and silence. And I think it's so important when it comes to influence and persuasion. Yeah, and I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and it's so much about what is not said sometimes, right? Or the nuances, the choice in words, or the, you know, I mean, there's so much we need to pay attention to. And that's where that cultural context really matters. I kind of have to stop both of you for a second. And I'm thinking right now about people who are watching this and listening to this. And they're saying, now hold on a second, York and Carmilla, they sound like they're born in the United States and, and they don't, they don't have strong accents and, and they just seem to be communicating so smoothly and easily. I'll also share with that comment and then I'll turn it over to you that the native speakers working with me sometimes don't recognize perhaps I am at a disadvantage because I'm not working in my native language. So let me address both of you in that context, that perhaps you sound exactly like you should be sounding when you're working with native speakers. Would it be okay if I respond to that, Jorg? Of course. 
Now, I'm going to start addressing the accent first. It's, it's really tricky. There is no one good answer, and there is really not one good accent. I mean, talk about accents in the United States. You go from one area to another, and you may not be able to understand one each other. And I think it really is important to explore what accents really mean in general, and also when it comes to effectiveness of communication. So to me, accents are like colorful glass. To see through it, to see what's in it, it needs to be pretty clear. It needs to be sort of transparent. So the question is, how do I gain the clarity? Not how do I eliminate the color, which is to me the accent. It's the beauty. It's that extra spice. It's the goodness. And that goes beyond pure production of individual sounds and kind of includes the practice and understanding of the music, the rhythm of the language. I have to say I have an advantage. I'm a musician. <laughs> so for me, my auditory discrimination is easy to kind of see and hear it and being able to emulate it. How does the rhythm achieved? And it's tricky for people because it does not include how fast you speak or if you have your French or German accent, it's how do you use pauses? Uh, how do you use phrasing? How do you create parameters and how do you organize the language within patterns that are recognizable? And really for some international professionals, eliminating the traces of their color or their accent is like a key to the insiders club. Accent is such a great topic, by the way, right? So, so and it depends on what our goal is. W whatever criteria you use to evaluate Carmela or me is based on the native speaking standard, right? But it doesn't mean that that's necessarily what we try to emulate in a sense, right? Or what does emulation of that native standard even mean, you know, for, and, and Carmela, I think you're right. For some people, it means they're not standing out, right? They're not standing out as different somehow, as a foreigner. And now it depends a lot about what kind of accent you have and how you feel about your origin and whether that's how important that is. And I think that's, that's not to be underestimated in the psychology of people and, and what drives them, actually. Of course, what you can easily have is people who get stifled by that incredibly. Their, their desire becomes to sound like a native speaker. They may feel or even get, and as soon as somebody asks, oh, where are you from? I hear an accent or so. Every, that it reminds them, oop, I don't sound yet like I want to sound. And that may trigger all kinds of complicated feelings. And that can set people back or they mute their voice, you know, otherwise they would contribute a lot more or speak a lot more or initiate relationships more. And then somehow they suppress that in themselves. So accent, I think, is a tricky one. But you asked also why, how come we speak so fluently and, and so forth. And I think it's, you know, it's different if you are in Carmela or my case, where we essentially live in an English speaking environment. So you use it. I use it at home every day. So it's it becomes my second language. But that doesn't mean that I, I don't struggle with it. It also doesn't mean that it I, I haven't always sounded like this or spoken like this. I mean, there is a significant years of working at it, in a, in a sense. So, And I think international professionals, they don't have the luxury of not thinking about their English 
the way they sound, how they communicate. Native speakers can ignore this altogether. But for international professionals, it's just always there somehow. And one more quick thought. I said native speakers can ignore it. That's actually not really true, right? Because, because accents reveal something about where you're from. Accents reveal something about your class, even though in the US we don't talk about class that much. But it, accents carry connotations. And there are many people that I've met in the US who have worked very hard at reducing their accent because it revealed that they were perhaps from the South and they were now in the North somehow or, or whatever else it was. So accent is actually reveals our background and identity and triggers a lot of complicated feelings sometimes. Native speaker to native speaker does not guarantee clarity. And as an example, I had some fun recently with my niece's significant other who's from Australia. And we shared new idioms, laughed at the major differences in our accents. And several times they asked me, why do Americans do this or do that? And together we shared some cultural differences. But there was an implicit trust and a strong connection in those interactions. And that always helps. Now, Carmela, you once told me you felt like you were always in the visitor's ballpark when communicating in English. Curious to see if you still feel that way. Absolutely. And would it be okay if I just add one more thing to what Jörg mentioned about English and accents? And totally agree with you, Jörg, is sometimes accents carry a bias. And whereas bias could be also positive, it could also reduce my confidence and absolutely stifle voices where you avoid it. What it also does sometimes on the flip side, on the native side, is you hear that accent, you may be expecting not to understand. You may start expecting challenges with communication and then the meaning dance begins. But I really think that those expectations can be quickly mitigated with engaging, well-organized and compelling narrative. I also think that when international people communicate, they don't have a problem communicating with each other. Their accents do not stand in a way it does become a little bit more challenging when the accents are with a native speaker, where, again, they're expecting to hear it in a certain pattern, and it does not come this way. So, Vince, you asked me about in a visitor's ballpark. So, yeah, so I guess we first would need to explain what that idiomatic expression means. Uh, being basically an outsider in area that is so familiar to everyone else in that area. And I think that feeling of being different, sometimes not always being able to relate, especially at the end of the day, if I'm tired, because it takes, like York said, you always have to be conscious. You have to be on your toes. It takes a lot of mental capacity, brain capacity to be aware of it, to be part of the pack, to be not standing out. Not that it's a problem for some people. But that takes energy. So at the end of the day, when I'm a little bit more fatigued, that accent comes right out. And I have a mixture of it. And depends on what other languages I spoke during the day, that is going to pop out more. Or I'm going to start mumbling more. Or I may forget my words. So all of these other challenges start creeping in after so many years of just speaking so fluently and working 
at it. I hope that answered your question, Vince. Yeah, beautifully, beautifully. I know you already feel very similar. I've heard you discuss that at the end of the day, and I've heard you, you, you'll put some German music on. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it can be extremely exhausting, right? I mean, the, I mean, if you spend an entire day in, in English and, and sometimes, I mean, I, on, on, at these conferences that companies are doing for their global staff, right? I mean, it, you can tell that actually well-intentioned, you know, maximizing agendas. This was before COVID, of course, and maybe a reality we're getting back to maybe we should rethink, but, you know, packed agendas. The attendees are people who don't use English on a day-to-day -day basis. They use it in for certain types of meetings, but, but it's not a routine, right? They're working in local language. And then for global interactions or whatnot, they use English. They get into conferences, and I've had people who were in absolute, they had a headache at the end of the day, and then they were asked to socialize, and they were jet-lagged, and all these kinds of things. And companies sometimes don't pay enough attention to that. They assume that people can just engage in a similar way that native speakers can engage. And that's, that's not true. Well, let's stay with that theme for a second, because both of you are consultants and in, inside corporations and been doing this for many, many years. You know, what role do international professionals play and what challenges do they face inside organizations? Just so curious. I'll let you, either one of you take it away. Well, I, I don't know where to start, actually. You know, the, the first one we probably mentioned already, and Carmela, you, that resonated with, with what you were saying, I mean, around voice, right? I mean, people, if people self-censor and stifle their voice, they withhold, they withhold their voice, they withhold their contributions. And I've seen extremely seasoned business people, very experienced, withhold their contributions because, let's say, they were worried, here is my status as a scientist or as a leader in my own environment, and I don't want to embarrass myself in the use of English. Maybe I'm worried about grammatical correctness or pronounce certain words that I know are just really hard to pronounce. And so that embarrassment can not hold people even back, but it also can derail careers where otherwise really stellar people get stifled in their careers because they are just not evaluated as having leadership qualities or so. So it's you know, the voice, but also career is impacted significantly. And it's sometimes extremely sad to see that because if you listen a little deeper, as Carmela said, or, or you just know the person a little deeper, you know they're not as uncomfortable or they don't need to be as uncomfortable as they are. And it just takes a little bit of attention, but it's that attention doesn't usually come from their managers or so. It needs to come from some other place, and usually companies don't pay that that much attention, and they don't provide the resources. And Carmela, I'm going to go back to you with the listen. This is listening, but actually a different kind of listening. Uh, and this is a listening that just says, oh, this person's quiet and comfortable. Not necessarily reading it, not everybody, but sometimes people are quiet and confident, but oftentimes there's a crisis of confidence that's going on that people are afraid to share their voice because of all of these perceived limitations in the language. So I go back to what you said earlier about listening and the depth of what that really means. 
Absolutely. And it's listening and also feeling that you're being heard. And that feeling of because of where I am and who I am or perceived who I am, you may not get as much sponsorship to help you rise in your career. So there's a lot of listening, being heard. And I think you nailed it, Vince. Confidence, I think, is number one. It's that doubt in your own ability to learn, to perform to expectations. And it's not necessarily what you know the expectations are, but your perceived expectations. It's that constant comparison, that constant sort of I'm surviving versus thriving. What would they think about me? You know, I just got off a call right before this meeting and director for a large global company. And the response was, you need more polish, more soft skills. And how do I add? How do I go about it? And my fear is, what would they think about me? What value am I adding? That hesitation and constant self-evaluation, something that native speakers don't necessarily do at the same time. And I think that throws off that focus, constantly focus on myself. What am I doing wrong? As opposed to what have I accomplished and what am I doing right? It's constantly undermining yourself in many ways and feeling as an outsider. So I think these are the different challenges that I've known I'd experienced myself. And I'm sure you did too, Jorgen. And that's what we see with the international professionals that we work with. Well, and there is the flip side of confidence is also this idea of trusting the environment, trusting the other native speakers or so to actually be forgiving of your mistakes, right? I mean, we all operate with internalized standards and that usually comes from how we were raised and the school systems and what was a mistake and what did it mean to make a mistake? And so, I mean, I've seen a lot of people underestimate or misjudging the readiness of the environment to be very forgiving about things that in their own native environments you would be terribly embarrassed around in a, in a business context, right? And, and so misjudging that. And so there is a lack of confidence maybe, and then there is this lack of judgment about the forgiveness that exists. And, and, and then you get this spiral of where people don't shine and where they <laughs> try to survive. There is maybe one additional thing that I've observed in, and we, we've been talking about spoken communication probably more than, than anything else, but written communication as well. And this actually impacts organizations in ways that they many people may not realize. The speed with which information travels or information is provided or responded to. So all of a sudden you get people to get very conscious about, I, I understand the email I'm getting, I understand what is asked of me, I can respond, but how will written communication be perceived? So then we, we, we wait a little bit. We have other people who are, quote unquote, better in, in English or so, read the communication. And all of that takes time. And so sometimes when speed of response is probably more important than the accuracy of the way it's written, you actually get sometimes real delays and impactful delays where people, again, hold back their voice and, and so forth. And that doesn't look good on a performance evaluation then, or when people then look at, well, do we have the right people in, in hired in, in our business? So it, it has all kinds of manifestations and, and repercussions for people. 
you know, we talk about it take you to tango. And what tell me about the side that needs to do the better dancing. Uh, so what do you mean by the native speakers need to be more forgiving, if I, if I got it right, on, on what you were saying about any mistakes I might make? Could you, either one of you, elaborate on that a little bit? If I can uh, just also add, and I think that is connected to your next question, Vince, in terms of confidence and then I think the observable behavior of confidence is different. That is also something that when it comes to how do you translate confidence, how do you forgive or how do you understand what's not written or said, that is between the lines. That's in the background. So I think understanding the differences and recognizing that if I am not going to speak up all the time in the meetings, that means I'm lacking confidence. Or if I am being overly polite because this is my writing style, or if I'm very curt in my writing style, that it doesn't mean that I'm not confident or I'm not polite. So what is the observable behavior and how does it crisscross cultures and languages? And I'm going to hand it over to your. That's a great point. You know, that's where and this is why this is space. And I love, Vince, this idea of intersection of language, culture, and leadership that you mapped out, because it's not always so clear where what starts and where what ends. But one thing is for sure, we behave and we judge others based on what is normal for us, right? So, and that's where the misjudgments and come in, right? So we need to understand that, actually. So I'll give you one quick example of, of this. And this was a Swiss expat in the United States. And, you know, I did a little bit of work with him and, and he was bitterly complaining about what it meant to contribute based on U.S. standards. And it's, I mean, that's a classic one if you're in intercultural communication, but many people don't realize it still, that contribution in the United States is oftentimes equated with speaking, speaking in meetings. So what do you need to do in order to get heard and be seen as a valued contributor? You need to speak, speak up, speak a lot. And in fact, and there has been research actually, and I think Adam Grant, you know, recently spoke about that as well, that if you want to get promoted and get want to go far, you speak often in meetings. It's not correlated with what you're saying, actually. But the frequency of your speaking is more important than what it is that you're saying, which was the whole issue that this this Swiss expatriate brought up, he says, I don't understand it. You know, we, this is such a gigantic waste of time. We sit in these meetings and everybody says the same thing, just in different ways. And isn't it enough if one person says it once? I, I don't feel a need to repeat what other people have been saying all along. And he was not lacking in confidence, Carmelo, as you said. <laughs> he, was, he was actually, he was processing this culturally different environment. And because this was a company that was headquartered in Switzerland, he could actually feel rather empowered around it, right? So he could, he could relax around his own career. But when that is not the case, when the power language in a company is not yours, you need to think twice. There is also in companies something like the power language, and, and it all is what is spoken at headquarters and, and so forth. By the way, Vince, I mean, this is such a big topic, but the best example that I've seen was an organization, not a U.S. organization or a native English-speaking organization, but it was a Swedish organization that actually 
declared their company language at the global level to be broken English. And what I loved about it, and, and people loved it actually, because it gave everybody permission to not worry about the correctness, but be more concerned on, it's okay to make mistakes, it's okay if your slides don't have the right punctuation or whatever it is. What matters is that we are communicating, not that whether it's correct. And I, and I love that. Even to this day, I think this was, it's such a brilliant way of making it safe around any concern around correctness. And that psychological safety is just so important and is so missing when, when an international professional um, operates within a native environment. That is, that is huge. Yeah, you know, and it, it, as Jorge had mentioned, and, and both Carmela as well, if the context makes a difference, we're now working with a lot of people. I'll give you just one quick example. A senior level executive who's from Malaysia and living in Malaysia and is a native speaker of English, but is now tasked with working with the C-suite team of a U.S. firm. And I can't even begin to tell you the challenges of the communication that's being brought up. And it's very significant. And it's not just about packaging ideas, but it's really the whole concept of what it means to be a senior leader inside an organization. And he's the one that needs to adapt because he needs to be the one communicating with the bosses here stateside. Those coaching sessions are the most, I get, I get goosebumps talking about it because they're the most riveting coaching sessions I've ever done with this senior level individual. And it's just revealing all of the things you're talking about now. So it's not just about living and working in the United States, but it's about a really relationships between native speakers of English across different cultures. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. So there was a time when we have to look at our communication medium today, right? If you can send an email and you send it to some other place in the world, you're an international professional struggling with English, right? I mean, because we can no longer take for granted that the recipient of that email shares our cultural background. And we are in, the, in a different phase. When I came to the US, it was still a very geographic definition of what it meant to be international. Today, it's no longer a geographic definition. And I think this is really important. It's about effectiveness in a multilingual, multicultural environment. And our cultural conditioning is very strong, as probably this Malaysian business leader and his career and his success will depend on how he communicates, maybe to a rather native-speaking senior leadership team. And guess what? In an English Anglophone leadership team meeting banter and small talk conversation is a really important skill that is culturally uh, unique. There is a whole cultural context around it. And if you haven't grown up in that environment, you just don't know the rules. You don't even know how to break into a conversation. Great segue into maybe the, the final section here. And I know both of you are doing significant work around narrative and developing your narrative. Um, and I often call that the leadership piece. That's the distinguisher. Clarity is not just about sound production, and certainly 
impact as Yorba uh, usual word, inspiring those around you. But the narrative piece is the one that really the global leaders are attracted to. So, so let me turn it over to you and just, what does that mean, developing your compelling narrative? Narrative is just, like you said, it's just so broad. We sometimes think of a narrative as just the words I'm going to use or what I'm going to talk about, the content. But narrative is just so much more. It's what it is, how it is organized, how it is conditioned, how it's packaged. And also, I think most importantly, how does it connect to my personal backstory, to me, to my values? How does it align with my values and my beliefs? And some of my beliefs may be limiting my inner dialogue with myself. How do I feel about my strengths and my weaknesses? Am I a victim or am I a victor? <laughs> my narrative for me is how I show up. It's me, my personally, professionally, in all my roles. It's my authenticity, how authentic I am. How comfortable am I being authentic or being vulnerable? You know, something that right now is that buzz how I celebrate my successes and how do I sabotage my successes and how quickly I recover from my setbacks. And I think that is all part of my narrative. And I think we all come with a story, exploring what that story is. And it's okay to rewrite it. It's okay to rewrite our story, building your narrative and the new experiences, the new you, the new circumstances, expecting to not be perfect because perfection is a myth. <laughs> How do we actually take that in and use that for our effective leadership? So quick example, I come from a very open, direct and emotional cultures. When I was a young professional in the financial business world, wearing your heart on your sleeve, here's the idiom, showing your emotions in an honest and open manner was not really considered very professional. So it took a lot of restraint for me and mindfulness on my part to fit into that norm, that professional financial executive norm, not without a price at the end of the day, that emotional fatigue that we were talking about. But today it's authenticity, it's vulnerability. It's talking about your emotions. How are you feeling as part of being a leader, checking in on the pulse of, of emotional wellness? And that can, again, be difficult for other people who come from different cultures. So the question is, how do we navigate through it? And I'll, I'll hand it over to Jorg. Yeah, I think you can already tell by the descriptions how much things have shifted even. You know, the expectations in business today on how do we reveal, talk about emotions and, and so forth. That has certainly changed a lot. I would maybe add an interpretation of narrative to that, that I think is important also in the context of the business environment. And, and to think about it, I think leaders in general, forget about international professionals, international leaders in general, more and more have to create a compelling narrative that is not just the story they tell about themselves or their company or their products, but that has to involve the consumer, it has to involve the buyer, and increasingly it has, to, it has to involve the employees. That's why you have all this emphasis on purpose and passion and, and all these kind of things in the workplace, because we're not just working, we're not just manufacturing. We together have a much bigger story to tell, and I as a leader 
don't just provide work to people. I need to involve them in a story that they want to be part of, that they can see themselves as taking an active role in being a protagonist in this bigger story. And so as a leader, I need to create a compelling narrative. And that's why I think in our book, there is a chapter where we folded Bruce Springsteen, right? That said, the hallmark of a great rock and roll band is the narrative you tell together is bigger than anyone could have told on their own. And I think that's what leaders need to do with their people today. And think about it, we are in much more uncertain times. We're in incredibly volatile times. We don't know where the how things will turn out. And so as leaders, we need to give people that sense of identity and purpose and, and inspire them to work towards something bigger than just a paycheck. And so when you think about that now from a cultural perspective, what is that narrative that motivates someone? Can we assume that we are all motivated by the same things, that we gravitate towards the same vision, that we respond to the same metaphors, right? How do we even tell that story of the bigger narrative in a way that inspires people across cultures to want to participate in this? Are we aware of the symbolism, the symbolic nature of our company, our enterprise that we are creating? So I think as leaders, as especially international professionals, we now have, this is already a tall order for local leaders or leaders who are fine in English, but native speaking leaders. It's already a tall order for international professionals to now create that level of narrative and that level of impact across language and culture is even harder, I think. And that requires a deep level of self-awareness and skill building. And I think that goes back to it takes two to tango. So how do you create that understanding where you are enveloping, where you are bringing the other person or the other team or people in with you into your story? And that goes both ways. Uh, the native leader with the international professionals, the international professionals with other people within their team. So that's, that is really the heart of it takes two to tango. A quick example that comes up, this was a European leader to also in the U.S. organization trying to motivate, he was newly appointed, trying to motivate his team. His kind of inaugural speech to everyone was about soccer. He was actually deconstructing a beautiful soccer play of the Spanish national team. And that story in a European context would have directly spoken to the emotions of people but it fell flat. There was no emotional connection. People were looking at themselves and saying, who is this guy? Why is he telling us about this thing? And he was very passionate and very energized and engaged and everybody else was not. So that was not the best way to start taking your team in a different direction, marking your, your taking charge of this particular team and business unit. That was not a great way to start. Just as a quick example, I mean, just be, because it's fraught with all kinds of risks and dangers to undermine our best intentions as an international professional. As we look at creating narratives, one important skill is visualization. Showing the audience rather than telling the audience is a high-level public speaking skill and valuable 
for both native and non-native speakers of English? I would say my kind of conclusion is awareness, listening, mistakes are okay. Being different is beautiful. It's strength. It's just kind of acceptance of diversity right now is just so incredibly important. And as an international professionals, we are the bridge. So we're strong. We have the capacity. And, and I think that is shifting the mindset from I'm not enough to, wow, I'm more than enough because I have so much to offer. I have different languages. I have different vantage points. I can think from different directions. So it is an asset, not a weakness. Most definitely. I would totally agree with everything you just said. And that's why maybe my final comments are directed not at international professionals at all, but maybe at native English-speaking managers and people who operate in a global international business environment, interacting with international professionals. Because just because English may be the global language of business or the global language in an organization does not mean that it is the language that that particular native speaker knows. You know, because in order to be understood clearly requires also of native speakers to understand what is it about their way of speaking, their pronunciation, their way of giving presentations that may present hurdles and gaps, you know, and think about making shifts and adaptations. And I think this is many people think, oh, I only speak English. I'm lucky that I'm working now internationally and everybody speaks English. And I always say, no, not really, because you need to also learn to shift the way you speak. Sometimes a little technique, for example, because vocabulary gets in the way. A point that you want to accentuate the central point you want to make and state it in maybe two or three different ways, using two or three different sets of words or vocabulary to give people who are struggling with vocabulary at least two or three different options to actually understand what you're asking of them. For example, there are a whole host of techniques that people can learn and should learn because in all likelihood, the international English spoken is not the native language people really know and master. So get curious, come closer to what you don't understand. And the curiosity goes both ways. And it's probably a great currency for building trust and relationships. Yeah, and be ready to shift something. And sometimes we call it style shifting a little bit, but that's what is required. Well, my final comments, I, I would like to thank both of you for sharing this journey uh, with me. We've been together a long time and now sharing also your thoughts with our audience. Uh, very exciting and a, a virtual round of applause for you guys. Uh, really well appreciated very much. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Conversations with International Professionals. If you have an interest in the MCIN course or want to take the free assessment, visit us at leadinenglish.com. <laughs>